welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. All right, well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. Today is February 6th. As a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of the Bible. And so today, Genesis uh, 37, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and the theology very briefly. My goal is, is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day, and sometimes, you know, we're pretty successful, and other times uh, we go about 30 minutes. So let's get into our reading today from the Word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the heat field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with your flock, and bring word. And so he sent him to uh, from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill them. And he said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. 
And then they sat down to eat. And, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our own brother, our own flesh. And his brother listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 sackles of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned uh, to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without torn to pieces. And then uh, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up and comforted him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is our reading today from Genesis 37. With the history of Esau and his descendants concluded, Moses now returns to the chosen line of God. In our chapter today, it begins with a short introduction reminding us that Isaac's younger son was living in the land of Canaan when the history of the generations of Jacob began in verses 1 through 2. Like the other genealogical list in Genesis, this next section is not primarily about the father uh, named in verse 2. Instead, Moses focuses on Jacob's 12 sons, and especially Joseph. The story of Joseph is familiar to us since it probably is among the first biblical narratives that we learned as children and has even been adapted to both the stage and the modern literature. We remember his maltreatment at the hands of his brothers, and yet we often forget that, that Joseph was something of a spoiled young man. Now, early in his life, Joseph associated himself closely with Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the sons of Bilda and Zilpha, in verses 1 through 13 of our chapter today. And would come in the, from the fields to give his father a bad report about them. Well, the Hebrew word for report in Genesis 37, 2 is used elsewhere to describe false tales in Numbers 13, 32. Now, some commentators believe Joseph was stretching the truth about his brothers, if not fabricating stories about them. So even if Joseph was not guilty of either of these sins, he was acting as the perennial unpopular tattletale and likely refused to cover even minor offenses with love. Now, Jacob's favor for Joseph, the son of his favorite wife, exasperated this difficult situation. Loving him more than his other sons, Jacob made Joseph his famous coat of many colors in verse 3. Actually, the Hebrew adjective describing the coat is uncertain. It, it may have been a long-sleeved, it may have been ornamented coat, as a translation many colors comes from the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, whatever the road's precise appearance, it, it was a regal garment that honored Joseph. Princess Tamar later wore a coat with the same Hebrew descriptor in 2 Samuel 13, 18. 
Now, J Jacob perpetuated the sibling rivalry with his favor, and Joseph encouraged it with his attitude. Joseph's 11 brothers hated him intensely, for they envied their sibling's position, verse 4 tells us. John Christendom comments, Envy is a terrible passion, you see, and when it affects the soul, it does not leave it before bringing it to an extremely sorry state. Now, in due time, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers have for him will morph into a desire to kill him. Envy can indeed provoke a great many sins. So let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself jealous of another's position or power or platform or influence? Repent and ask the Lord to help you to be content with where he has you. So, so far in our study of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers, we have seen how Jacob's favorite son was somewhat arrogant and even self-absorbed. Now look, for example, at the manner in which he tells the dreams to his family. When Joseph is in Egypt, he attributes the interpretations of his dreams to God in Genesis 48 and Genesis 41, 15 through 16. But he fails to mention the Lord's gift when he relays and implicitly interprets his dream to his family here in verses 5 through 11 of Genesis 37. In fact, Joseph always seems to revel in his status as Jacob's most beloved child, which would have worsened the troubles had, had he had had with his brothers. Now, he wore his coat of many colors, the sign of his father's favor everywhere he went, the proof of this being that his brothers stripped him of his coat after he traveled miles to find them, according to verse 23. Now, you see, Joseph's pride should have been seen as sinful and foolish, according to Proverbs 16:18. but this does not mean he lacked a desire to honor his father and thereby serve the Lord. Today we see his eagerness to obey uh, Jacob, for Joseph uh, goes forth immediately from Hebron to find his brothers when asked, according to Genesis 37, 12 through 14. Matthew Henry writes, though he was his father's darling, yet he was willing to be his father's servant. How readily does he wait for his father's orders? And yet Joseph's mission is doomed from the start. His, his brothers have gone to Shechem, the last place that Jacob's son should have been on account of their massacre of the city's residents, as we've seen in Genesis 33, 18 through Genesis 34, 31. Their presence in an area where a lone son of Jacob might run into trouble indicates Joseph's welfare is not a concern of theirs, as they doubtless expect him to check up on them like he did before. Now, Joseph learns of his brother's move to Dothan from a man unknown to him, showing that Jacob's favorite son is a stranger in a strange land. Dothan was about a day's journey from Shechem, and it's going to place Joseph even further from the watchful eye of his father in Hebron. Something is amiss here. Now, willfully ignorant of, of the hatred that his other sons had for Joseph, Jacob has sent forth his favorite son into a trap, isolated and for a time wandering aimlessly. Joseph is about to enter tribulation. Now, J Joseph's hidiness only worsened his situation, and it shows us the dangerous nature of pride. As Christians, we should be the most humble of all the people, especially as we deal with non-believers. Some will think us arrogant simply for asserting that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. But we must not fuel this with a prideful attitude. We are not better, we're not smarter than others because we know Christ, and so we must never act as if we're inherently superior to anyone. In fact, our, our chapter today, it dispels with great force any doubt that the heart of Joseph's brothers were dark and calloused. 
Immediately after casting Joseph into the pit, the other sons of Jacob have no problem sitting down to enjoy a meal, according to Genesis thirty-seven twenty-five. There is a great deal of irony in all of this. Now, originally they planned to attribute Joseph's death to being ripped to shreds in verses 19 through 20. And yet, the brothers reveal themselves as a true beast in this story where, when they can dine after assaulting him. Now, the brothers later recall how they ignored Joseph's cries for mercy from the pit in Genesis 42:21, And this indifference, it shows how vile they were. They have committed spiritual adultery for they failed to see their wrongdoing just like the adulteress in Proverbs 30:20. And yet, Israel's sons were not lost forever. They were indeed blessed to be the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21:12. And yet, they were not immune, immune from gross sin, and neither are we today. John Calvin says, since the patriarchs fell into such a state of insensibility, let us learn from their example to fear, lest by the righteous anger of God the same lethargy should seize upon our senses. Now, with Joseph in the pit, his brothers must now decide his fate. And a golden opportunity presents itself when some Midianite appears carrying gum and balm and myrrh, wares used in medicine and perfumes and candies. Now, Judah suggests that they sell Joseph into slavery for a tidy profit. They earn 20 seconds of silver from the sale, according to Genesis 37, 25-28. And since the normal yearly wage for a shepherd was 8 shekels, this is, a, this is a lot of money. Now, in selling Joseph into slavery, his brothers hope to ensure his dreams will not come true. And yet the Lord will actually use their wicked deeds to fulfill uh, Joseph's visions according to Genesis 50:20. And still, though God's providence is guarding Joseph, his life is not free of suffering. The same is true of us, as John Calvin writes in his comments on Genesis 37:19. We also have received the gratuitous ad adoption of God amidst many sorrows, experience the same thing. For from the time that Christ gathers us into his flock, God permits us to be cast down in various ways so that we seem nearer uh, hell than heaven. Now, Joseph may have seemed a spoiled brat, but, but he by no means deserved the suffering inflicted by him. And though we do sin, there are times when we will face pain from others that is undeserved. And yet, though we do not discount the difficulty of these times, there are still occasions to rejoice. For when we suffer undeservedly, we imitate Christ who can choose to enter this world and endure pain even though he alone was truly and completely innocent. Occasionally, we have talked about how certain details of the Genesis narrative help to confirm the book's historicity. Such details, they can be minor, they can even be easily overlooked. Uh, for example, Joseph's brothers were seemingly able to take their large flock between Shechem and Dotham with ease according to Genesis 37, 12 through 17. This would have only been possible in the patriarch age when the area was sparsely populated. Later on, the population density would have made this ease of pasturing difficult, if not impossible. Moses' accurate knowledge of the purity describes contributes to our confidence in the narrative's truth. And yet, Joseph's brothers lash out at him in hatred while in Dothan. Years of envy and rage came to a head when they see him coming from a distance, probably because his multicolored coat made Joseph visible from afar. And our, our chapter today also says they hatched their plot to murder Joseph before he came near. They, they do not have to think about the deed. Their decision is made when all they can see of Joseph is that faint outline on the horizon. Now, in all likelihood, they have been waiting for a chance to get rid of Joseph. 
But notice in verse 24 of this chapter, Joseph's brothers have not gone through with their plan. Instead, they cast him into a pit. Now, Moses is careful to tell us there is no water in this pit, a cistern cut into the limestone in order to allay fears that Joseph might drown. And so he also imitates that Joseph's story is far from over and that there is much more to come. The brothers act savagely in Genesis 37, 23 through 24, but Reuben's intervention has prevented them from taking Joseph's life. He was absent, Reuben was, when the plan was conceived, and he later convinced them to hold back in verses 21 through 22. As the older brother Reuben would have, would have borne the greatest responsibility if something happened to Joseph, and he may have been trying to make amends for lying with Jacob's concubines in Genesis 35, 22. Because his response to the loss of Joseph anticipates his father's reaction to the same news, some commentators note Reuben was probably motivated by a desire that his father not have to grieve. And if this is true, Reuben's love for Jacob shows he was not a total scoundrel at all. Now John Calvin tells us this, the characters of men are not to be estimated by a single act, however atrocious, so as to cause us to despair of their salvation. Like Reuben, believers today can fall into gross sin, but they may also be forgiven and restored upon repentance in Christ alone. Has someone harmed you, repented, and endeavored to make amends? Forgive them if you have not yet done so. If you have sinned grievously, know that God always forgives the repentant. Now, Joseph's assault in Genesis 37, it demonstrates God's providence since Dothan happened to be close to the main trading route joining Egypt to the rest of the known world. This city... Uh, gave the Lord through the machinations of Jacob's sons an ideal place to deliver Joseph into Midianite hands and on into Egypt ahead of his family. Now, these Midianites were also called Ishmaelites, perhaps because the two groups have intermarried or because they were sons of Ishmael who lived in Midian. It may also be that all nomadic peoples were commonly called Ishmaelites back then. Well, whatever the case is, our chapter today tells us that Joseph's older brother, Reuben, was not around when he was sold into slavery, since he, he, we know about the work of shepherding. The brothers were all gathered into one general area, but having to tend and to move many flocks required each one to come and to go at different times. Now, finding Joseph absent, Reuben rends all of his clothes, a sign of mourning, and a prediction of his father's reaction to this news. Now, many commentators, they say that this shows Reuben loved Jacob and was concerned about his emotional state. His brothers, on the other hand, hide their crime by slaughtering a goat and dipping Joseph's treasure coat in blood in verse 31. As is typical, one misdeed leads to another. Matthew Henry says, when the devil has taught men to commit one sin, he then teaches them to conceal it with another. But he who covers his sin shall not prosper long. In fact, the sin of Joseph's brother will one day be found out, according to Genesis 44, that we'll see. Jacob is inconsolable at the loss of his favorite son, and he believes that he will not see Joseph again before his death in verses 33 through 37. In fact, Jacob's son use of a goat to, de to deceive him about Joseph's fate, just as he, as a son, once tricked his father, Isaac, with a goat as well in Genesis 27. Most likely, this is another instance of divine eye-for-an-eye justice where Jacob reads what he has sown. God turns away his eternal wrath from all who repent. Nevertheless, sin has its consequences in the here and now. 
And although as good as dead, Joseph is alive and will actually be used to bring life to Egypt and to his kin. How much greater then is Christ who actually died before rising again to give us new life? John Calvin says regarding Genesis 37, 6, that the Lord performs his work by wonderful and unusual modes and brings forth the salvation of his church, not from magnificent splendor, but from the death and the grave. See, God loves to bring good from evil and life from death. So before the bar of God's perfect righteousness, sinners cannot in and of themselves be accounted righteous according to Romans 3, 9 through 20. Trusting in Christ alone so that we might be credited with his righteousness is the only way that we can stand before the Father without fear or condemnation. And yet, even though we're not perfectly holy in practice before we die, there are still some people who's, who are more disciplined in their following of the law of God than others. Such persons can be said to be more righteous than, than others, at least from a human perspective. And the patriarch Joseph is one of these men. And looking at his life, it helps us to see what a life guided by the commandments of the Lord actually looks like. Now, Joseph stands out in Scripture as one who, whom it is almost impossible to find any fault. The Bible is brutally honest about the character flaws of the great heroes of the faith, never ignoring the sins of Abraham, Moses, David, and other important figures in redemptive history. And in the case of Joseph, we, we have to press very hard to find anything blameworthy in him. And yet we do know that he struggled with sin, even if it's not mentioned directly. Now, many commentators, for example, have concluded that he was something of a spoiled child, a tattletale on his brothers, a proud individual who gloated, at least indirectly, about his high position that his dreams foretold. Of course, even though the Genesis narrative provides hints that Joseph was not the ideal saint in every respect, it by no means concludes that this treatment that he received at the hands of his brothers was justly deserved. His brothers sinned when they sold him in, in, to the Ishmaelite slave traders, even if Joseph fueled the fires of their jealousy. Sibling rivalry was a problem for this family from the very beginning of Joseph's life, but their father, uh, Jacob, made matters even worse with his favoritism. It was not that he did not love his other sons. It was that he loved Joseph more, and that is why he gave his favorite son this coat, an expensive gift in those days. This made Joseph's brothers hate him all the more, and it set the stage for the evil that would follow. Now, the jealousy of, of Joseph's brothers, exasperated by Jacob's favoritism, it led to their selling him into slavery and the subsequent lies that a wild animal had killed him. And though we cannot blame their sin on Jacob, this story does illustrate the negative consequences when parents favor one child over another. Parents should take care not to commit this error by actively seeking to praise the unique gifts of each of their children. Even a casual reading of the climax of Genesis would suggest that it is an account centered upon Joseph. And a more careful reading of the text demonstrates that the true focus is upon Joseph's brother Judah, to whom the scepter in Israel is at last given by their father in Genesis 49.10. And at the beginning of the account, Jacob gives the famous coat of many colors to, to, to Joseph, as we've talked about. Joseph also has the dreams foretelling that his brothers will bow down to him in Genesis 37, 5 through 10. But in an astonishing reversal of fortunes at the end of the narrative, uh, Jacob ascribes a colorful garment dipped in the blood of grapes to Judah and sent it to Joseph in Genesis 49:11, And he foretells that all the brothers, including Joseph, will bow down to Judah in Genesis 49:8. One of the overarching themes of this Genesis narrative is the grace of God in his election, a grace that is highlighted by the relative merit of Joseph and the demerit of Judah. 
Joseph is the faithful and loving son of Jacob, the delight of his old age. He is favored by his father over all of his brothers. Judah, in Greek, his name is rendered Judas, is a treacherous brother who suggests selling Joseph to the Midianites for silver. He participates in the cruel deception of his father who believes that a wild beast has devoured, devoured his beloved son. Well, contrary to the covenant of his fathers, Judah marries a Canaanite woman who bears him two sons, according to Genesis 38, 1-10. Now, Judah wrongly judges his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to be responsible for the death of his sons. And so he defrauds her by promising to her a Levite marriage with his remaining son that he never intends to honor in Genesis 38, 11-14. Tamar, however, wants to be the mother of Judah's heir, and so she dresses up as a prostitute, knowing the wicked character of her father-in-law. Now, when Judah later discovers Tamar's pregnancy, he self-righteously and hypocritically condemns her for immorality and wants her to suffer burning, determined to destroy her, and unwillingly his seed by her. Now, in contrast to Judah's wickedness, Joseph was the model of rectitude and righteousness. He was a loving son of his father and was favored above all his brothers. He was favored by heaven, too, and given prophetic dreams of an ascendancy over his brothers. He suffered unjustly at the hands of his brethren, and yet he maintained his integrity in the face of so bitter a betrayal. And when he was pursued by the horse life of his Egyptian master, Potiphar, he refused to disrespect his master and do evil before his God. Now, because he had done nothing wrong, the Lord was with Joseph, whether he was over Potiphar's household or over the prison house. Consequently, when juxtaposed to his brother Judah, Joseph displays all the marks of one entitled to rule in Judah. And so Judah, on the other hand, is precisely one we would reject as utterly unworthy of rule. But God rejected Joseph. He gave Judah the right to rule in Israel. And how can this be, you might ask? Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, is ironically the great teacher of grace to God's people. God's choice, Moses makes clear, defies our assumptions about legal merit and demerit. Man's customary preference is for the firstborn, and yet God disregards birth order when he elects Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, and Jacob over Esau. There is an emblematic representation of this principle of God's election with respect to the sons of Judah and Joseph. Both Judah and Joseph have two sons whose destiny is instructive. In each case, God's election is marked by the peculiar withdrawal of a hand. Tamar gives birth to Judah's twins, Zerah and Perez. Zerah is the first son to present in the birth, and his hand is marked with a scarlet cord to give him the dignity of the firstborn, according to the custom. But Zerah's hand is withdrawn, and Perez comes forth first instead. Afterward, the line of Zerah will be cut off altogether in Achan, in Joshua 7, 10-26, with Rahab, who married in the line of Perez, receiving the scarlet cord of election. And as as a result, Perez receives a scepter in Judah, according to Matthew 1.3. Now, Joseph has two sons whom he presents to his father Jacob for a blessing. And Joseph carefully arranges his sons in order that their grandfather would honor the firstborn Manasseh over Ephraim, uh, Joseph's secondborn son. He places Manasseh before Jacob's right hand and Ephraim before his left hand. But to Joseph's dismay, Jacob crosses his hands in the blessing and gives a greater honor to the lesser son in Genesis 48. 
Now, Moses' teaching that God's election is through grace alone, it gives believers the true perspective of our own position before God, afterwards confirmed by the Lord's evangelists and the apostles. Christ, who is eternally at the right hand of the Father's blessing, holds Judah's scepter. It is through Christ alone that we, in a glorious grace that disregards our own demerit and marvelously imputes to us the merit of Judah's prince, have obtained our own participation in the astonishing grace of God's election. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship created for good works in Ephesians 2.10. The Greek word for workmanship is literally poetry, and the idea is, is that our lives express form and pattern with, along with beauty. Like the underside of a grandmother's cross stitch, the everyday of our lives may look to be knotted and hopelessly tangled, but when we turn the fabric over, we see design and beauty that, that was there all along that we never foresaw. Joseph's life was like that. Through all the reversals, the betrayals, the slander he suffered, God was poetically designing his life so that he would be able to accomplish many good works, including saving his own family and then the entire world from the famine that was to come. The patterns in the life of Joseph reveal the poetry of God's providential hand and offer the basis to even understand why Joseph was able to persevere under such terrible trials of faith. We can learn much by looking for the form and the pattern in Joseph's everyday life. For example, Joseph underwent three cycles of demotion and promotion, wherein he was always raised to be the second in authority, never the first. He began as the favorite of his father Jacob, trusted over all his brothers. But his brothers treacherously sold him into slavery down in Egypt. He rose to be the favorite of Potiphar in command of all the household of his master. But he was slandered by Potiphar's wife and cast down in a dungeon in Egypt. Once again, Joseph rose to be the favorite of the warden in charge of all the prisoners. At last, he was delivered from this downward spile to be elevated as a favorite of Pharaoh ruling all of Egypt. But through all these ups and through all these downs, Joseph was second to Jacob, second to Potiphar, second to the jail warden, and finally second to the Pharaoh himself. And now during the outworking of the cycles of his uprising and falling, Moses notes that every time Joseph altered his position, there was a marked change in his clothing. His father gave Joseph a beautiful coat of many colors, but his brothers stripped it off of him and used his garment to deceive his father. Now, Potiphar's wife stripped Joseph's garments off of him and used his clothing to deceive his master. Now, when Joseph was later summoned by the Pharaoh himself, our text notes that after he left the jail, he changed his garments in Genesis 41:14. And so finally, when the Pharaoh invested Joseph with the, the authority over all of Egypt, he gave him a garment of fine linen along with a golden collar of authority in Genesis 41:42. And now when Moses recorded the account of Joseph, he identified and even preserved these patterns as noteworthy providences in the history of redemption. Well, you might be wondering, why did Moses record these lessons for us? Well, one lesson we learn from such patterns is that the apparent random walk of our everyday lives is not random at all. A design emerges from this data, and such patterning demonstrates an intelligent providence directing all things. Joseph understood that even adversity is superintended by God to accomplish worthy ends, that God in his sovereignty intends what men purpose for evil to accomplish good. 
There is an additional pattern in Joseph's history that gives us a clue as to his ability to persevere against the treachery of his brothers and the slander of his master's wife. This pattern has to do with prophetic dreams. There are three sets of two dreams in the Joseph narrative, and these dreams they give us a total and and they help us to really understand what they mean now joseph had two dreams in canaan in genesis 37 5 through 11 pharaoh's cupbearer and bake baker dream in the prison having two dreams in one night in genesis 45 finally the pharaoh had two dreams in one night in genesis 41 1 and genesis 41 5. joseph recognized the significance of the pattern of two dreams he explained the pharaoh that that god had given him two dreams to confirm the truth of the message communicated by the dreams which was a sign that god would surely bring the dream to pass in this light it's instructive to note that when joseph in jail heard the dreams of pharaoh's cupcake cupbearer and baker he readily offered to interpret their dreams well joseph already had two dreams foretelling that his brothers would bow down to him after the years that had passed since he had been sold into bondage if ever there was an occasion to doubt the prophecy of joseph's dream joseph in the dungeon had reason to disbelieve but god has spoken to his grandfather abraham and to his father jacob through dreams in genesis 15 and genesis 28 and so it's clear that Joseph offered to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh's ministers because he still believed in prophetic dreams. And in spite of all the adversity that had befallen him, Joseph fully expected to see his brothers again someday as they would bow before him. God worked mightily through all of Joseph's adversity to preserve the family that was to become Israel. Now, in the fullness of time, God, who delights in working his providence through patterns, would once again give two prophetic dreams to another Joseph, and the true Israel would once again be preserved thereby in Egypt, as we see in, Ma- in Matthew one twenty and Matthew 2.19. All that the true bread of life might be given to the whole world and yet another time of desperate hunger as John 6:48 tells us. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave and today is February 6th and we've looked at Genesis 37. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.